Welcome to the Liberty Hour on Inform Life Radio. This hour is brought to you by Inform Choice Washington. And we are so grateful to our listeners and to the members of Inform Choice Washington for supporting free speech on the airwaves about legislation, litigation, research rights, and so much more. If you're not all, if you're in Washington State and you're not already a member of Informed Choice Washington, I encourage you to please go join us. It costs nothing to join us. Get on our email list. Check out our website. Um, their legislative session has just begun. If you go to the website, you know we're going to try to do our best to keep you updated on any bills that you need to know about. Um, check that out, and then there'll be action alerts that you will receive. Um, there's also um, a vote for health, health freedom guides that will be coming forward. Um, we don't take a stance on any um, candidates at all, but we, we do help with surveys so that you can know the health freedom stance of those out there running for office. Uh, so the show can only be on the air because of, of members giving a little month. So after you join us, if you could just give a little bit every month, even $5 a month added together with that of others, keeps this on the air, keeps um, the ability of Informed Choice Washington to do the work um, that we do. So thank you for that. Uh, the, it's informedchoicewa.org, informedchoicewa.org. Um, the views expressed on the show are not necessarily those of KKNW, Informed Choice Washington, or Children's Health Defense, and the information we provide is not intended to be medical or legal advice. I'm going to bring on now uh, Dr. Javier Figueroa um, coming to me, my co-host. So glad to see you there. I'm going to go ahead and add you. Hey, Good welcome to, be to here. the second hour. Yay. <laughs> This topic just won't go away, will it? Autism. Um, it's going to be with us for a while. It's, it, yeah, let's hope it's not with us forever. Um, it, the, it, it's really interesting that as autism entered on stage at a certain time, and then it went from, you know, one in 100,000, one in 10,000, one in 1,000, one in 100, what is it now? One in 20 something. I lose track. One in 32 now. One in 30, depending on the survey and, and where yeah. you see it. And a lot of the data that we're getting, um, it's really, that's children who are eight years old. That's not, you know, because they, that's where they kind of track it. So it's likely far higher. And there's this weird duality of the powers that be, the powers that profit over the causes of autism yes, and that profit over treating all the symptoms of autism, want us to normalize it and not talk about it as if it's actually a, a neurological developmental disorder correct, or a biological physical disorder, because there's a lot of physical aspects to this. Um, but we refuse to be silenced. And... Um, 
And another thing I think that's really important before we bring on our guests is that, you know, I've done a lot of work, you know, talking to legislators, you know, just kind of communicating our concerns um, on a lot of different issues. And it's very tragic to me that they seem unmoved to do anything when they hear that people have been injured by a product. Right. But if you're able to show them how much something costs and how much money, say, the state is losing or, you know, something that might impact them, then they perk up, which is just tragic. But that brings me to um, our two guests today, um, who are two of the three authors of a very important study that shows the societal costs of autism, of the increasing rates of autism. So I'm going to bring on, I've got, I'll bring them on both and then I'll um, have them kind of do their own introduction. Um, I've got um, Cynthia Nevison, one of the authors, and then I've got Mark Blacksell here. The other author is Toby Rogers, and I hope in the future we'll be able to have Toby on as well. Um, so I'm not sure how to bring Mark on. I'm going to let Nathan do that. Are you are you with us here, Mark? He's on yep, audio only. Awesome. Thank you. Um, so, uh, Mark, could you please give us a little backstory about who you are? And you're, you've been on this journey a very long time. Um, yeah. so, I was just thinking, Brenda, that I've been writing about autism for over 20 years now. Um, and I got into it because I'm a dad. Um, I have a young uh, well, now a young adult, a uh, young female daughter, well, young female daughter, a young daughter who's now an adult, uh, was diagnosed back in 1998. She's now 27. And I got into the science and the tre- time trends in autism way back shortly after she was diagnosed because I was just trying to figure out what the situation was, what, what was going on. Mm-hmm. And there was sort of an orthodoxy around autism back then that it was rare, uh, constant prevalence, uh, 100% genetic, and, you know, a hopeless condition. Um, and I learned pretty quickly that all of that was wrong. Right. And I started just reading the science just to acquaint myself with the issues. But I, I, I'm a, I've had a 40-year business career. I'm a quantitative type of guy, analyst. I'm now a CFO of a couple of companies. I was in consulting for a long time, and I just became immersed in the literature, which was relatively modest at the time. But, you know, long story short, I think the lesson is, you know, uh, for a long time in the history of the world, the rate of autism was effectively zero. Mm-hmm. It was discovered in, among a bunch of kids in the 1930s. Um, yep. And then for a long time, you know, the measured rate was Nobody bothered to measure it because it was so rare. But then when they started to do studies, it was around 1 in 10,000, plus or minus. And then around 1990, the rate went vertical. And it, the, uh, the, it's now over 3%, you know, depending on which study you look at, 1 in 36, 1 in 29, 1 in 30. I mean, there's all, there are different ways to look at it and measure it. But it's, it's, uh, it, it's dramatic, huge impact, you know, uh, and, and I've been writing about that as all of that has happened. I started writing uh, science papers. I, I appeared before the Institute of Medicine, actually, in 2001 uh, with some of my early kind of analytics. The state of California was the first state to really 
quantify autism rates in a, in a, in a major geography and time right. trends. Um, mm-hmm. And then I've written two books on the subject and multiple articles, got together with Cindy, uh, you know, along the way. And, uh, and as you said, Bernadette, one of the big issues is, you know, sometimes, I mean, I always thought that when you got into over a 1%, Somehow people would sort of say, this is too much. This is a big problem. Too many children are, 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 are sick. Uh, mm-hmm. And that didn't seem to move the needle. So I had long wondered, well, let's, you know, because there is a cost of disease literature, but it's all terrible. And they all get it wrong because yes. they make basic assumptions that are just horribly wrong. Constant prevalence is stupid. I mean, when you have a, a, a condition that's increasing the way this is, and, and but you assume constant prevalence, what you do in those models is you, you know, posit a, an adult population that doesn't exist, uh, and you underestimate the cost of the kids, and you underestimate the change in the impact on the services system. So we decided to write this paper, and um, it's sort of the culmination of that 20-plus year journey. Um, and the fact that it, you know, this is the one that actually called out the enemies was, was, was interesting. Speaks to the importance of cost. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Thank you so much, Mark, for undertaking this and for all your years of dedication and for not giving up because I do feel as if COVID, as awful as it has been, has has opened up eyes and minds, hearts, let's hope wallets to begin to really make the changes that need to be made. So let's go ahead and bring on Cynthia. Um, And Cynthia, welcome to Liberty Hour on Inform Life Radio. It's your first time on the show. Yes, thank you. Glad to be here. Yeah. And in fact, I think it might be the first time I got Mark on here. Shame on me. I've been wanting to get Mark. (laughs) I've known about your show for a long time, Bernadette, but yeah. Yeah, I think I've asked you a few times and we never were able to coordinate it. So I'm so glad we finally got you here. Um, So, Cynthia, give us a little background um, on yourself. Uh, Yes. um, Well, I'm a research scientist. Uh, I have a my Ph.D. is in atmospheric science and I have done a lot of work on um, uh, atmospheric uh, pollutants, uh, greenhouse gases and time trends in those gases um, and um, I got interested in autism. Uh, it's it's really sort of a long story. I guess sort of sort of the real catalyst was having two boys when when I was an older. I was older at that point. Um, my first son was born in two thousand seven, and I had a number of I guess what I would call encounters with um, uh, severely autistic children that that kind of unnerved me. Right. Uh, in one case, my my baby was only a week old, um, so I I started I subscribed to some newsletters. I saw a call wanting wanting a volunteer to work on atmospheric pollution and autism, mm-hmm. and I thought that's up my alley. Um, and so I worked on that topic, and I and at that time, this was two thousand eight, nine, ten, around that era. Um, at that time, air pollution was the main environmental factor that the NIH or the NIEHS, the Environmental Health Sciences component of NIH, was right. willing to fund. And they were, you know, focusing on that as their priority. And a lot of the studies that, that found a correlation between air pollution and autism had been done in Los Angeles. 
where I happen to know the air, the air quality had improved considerably right. at the same time that the autism rates were skyrocketing. So I, you know, I, um, I guess I soon became disillusioned with my own study, finding a correlation between autism as, as a static snapshot and air pollution. And then I started looking to time trends and I published my first paper on autism in 2014 in environmental health. And I just, the, the basic point was the trend, the increasing trend in autism is the most striking feature of the data. And therefore, if you're going to look for an environmental cause, it should be something that is increasing in, in a commensurate way. And I guess I was shocked at the peer review process. It took me uh, nearly two years to get that paper published. Two years? Yeah, well, it w there was another paper that Mark, with Mark where it took us two and a half years. <laughs> um, but what, what, what struck me was how the peer reviewers, most of them thought that the time trends were irrelevant to, to identifying causation. And I, was, I just strongly disagreed with that. And so I had to shift my focus to actually documenting the time trends. Um, and that's kind of how I got linked up with Mark. And we wrote a couple of papers. Um, and then at some point, this was around 2017-ish, um, the, the issue of racial disparities in autism prevalence became an issue because it was, it was used by the CDC when they released their, their um, ADAM reports, mm. which is the prevalence among eight-year-olds. Uh, so th for the eight-year-olds born in 2006 and 2008, it appeared that the black and Hispanic rates were catching up to the white rates, which had flattened. Right. So this narrative was put out that this is a good thing that autism is increasing because it means we're better diagnosing the racial minorities and everyone's getting the services they need. And it's, it's a happy story. <laughs> I mean, that oh, wasn't quite like that. But that's kind of what they were saying. Um, and um, so I, you know, I was skeptical of that and I looked into the racial time trend data and basically found that not only are the black and Hispanic rates catching up, white up. children, they're surpassing at this point. Um, yep. And yet, you know, this, the CDC, the last Adam report they released, which was, um, when was that, Mark? That was uh, 2023, I think March 2023 or. Yeah, it was last year. Yeah. Pretty recently, they continued the sort of the catching up narrative without acknowledging that. It, it made no sense at this point to... Yeah, at one point when the numbers were starting to go up in these Adam reports, they would use the term an urgent public health concern or a public health crisis or an emergency. You know, they, 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 they treated the rises that they were observing uh, in, in prevalence as an issue. And then it kept going up and they had nothing to say about it. Um, and so they still haven't seen a, a peak in the numbers or a flattening in the numbers, but now they've used it as sort of a, just another marker of progressive politics. Oh, isn't it interesting that we're seeing more equity 
in you know in prevalence numbers across different yeah there any i mean any scrutiny of the of the recent um press release surrounding the adam report would would show that this is an incoherent narrative that <laughs> they <laughs> in the corner, and yet nobody asks any tough questions so so they i guess if they they're able to pass it off as a you know a thoughtful science when when I, it, I'm just sorry. I mean, I, this is probably going to sound, and again, this is my opinion, but it seems that once you start working for government, you sort of lose your your intellectual capacity to think critically. Unfortunately, well, it's even worse than that. You you, you view social problems as an opportunity to get more taxpayer dollars uh, to fund your department. I mean, well, I go. think that that's how they treat autism. Um, they, I, I talked, I've talked to people who are involved in the community of autism research that involves the government. And they said when they first started getting some numbers that were much higher than normal, they were excited. It was a yeah, positive thing more because it would, it would draw attention and funding to, you know, to their area. Um, so, yeah. And then they have no interest in making it go away or reducing the burden on families and children and society. Their only interest is in, you know, uh, directing more services that require more government support, expanded bureaucracies. It is, it's a, it's a dysfunction of, you know, of large government agencies and we're seeing it in spades here. Yeah. And, and now you're really sort of the bad, at least in my experience, I'm kind of the bad guy um, for su suggesting that this is a problem, that these rates are increasing because I think so many so many children are affected and a lot of them are more mildly affected now, I, I believe compared to, you know, 20 years ago to 30 years ago. Um, and, you know, these are w wonderful kids and you don't want to be the bad guys saying this, this should have been prevented. Um, you know, for example, I had a, I had a complaint filed against me that I was doing eugenics research as a result of this, paper that we um, published because we, we had a prevention scenario where the, the thought, you know, we, we just assumed, well, of course, it's desirable to prevent, to spare, you know, to lower children's risk of mm -hmm. developing what is really a disability. Correct. Um, but it's, it's such a sensitive issue that it's you know. been made a sensitive issue intentionally. It's it's the most creative evil marketing to to make it a sensitive issue. It's like saying it's eugenics to try to prevent schizophrenia. It's eugenics to try to prevent type one diabetes or anything you might be born with or, or something that you developed in or what or Alzheimer's or Alzheimer's or any of that. I mean, it's absurd. They make us all fearful of speaking up with their twisted language and the marketing language. I mean, it, it, you know, everybody used to joke that, you know, you got to get rid of all the attorneys. The attorneys are the worst thing on the planet, worst, worst profession. But I think the world's in the hot mess it's in because of the brilliance of evil marketers who will sell their, their services to write campaigns and to get people to believe this nonsense that if you try to stop the causes of a neurological, you know, something damaging that leads to an autism diagnosis, then you're, you're somehow trying to, 
stop people from being born or something that makes no no sense no sense and yet when you've got enough money to capture the journals the magazines the tvs the movies i mean everything this is the nonsense that we're fighting um but let's go ahead and move on to um two parts here I would love the two of you to describe the premise of this study that you wrote, you know, what it's about. Um, and then before we get into the details, explain what happened to it when, uh, you know, its first attempt um, at publication. Who would like to kind of describe the premise of the Cindy, you okay if I, I take that one? Yeah, I think this was Mark's idea. That I was more the person who did the coding. Um, okay. <laughs> well, you did a lot of really important stuff, Cindy. <laughs> but, the, I mean, and the idea actually came out of a paper that Cindy and I wrote together. It, it was the one before this one that it wasn't retracted, but it took two and a half years to get through peer review. Um, we, um, one of the things that brought us together is that Cindy had begun looking at the California numbers in depth. And I, way back when I started, uh, had been working, you know, had been contacting the California Department of Developmental Services, and I had a year-by-year -year snapshot of the autism population up through, um, what, 2010, Cindy? And then Cindy, and, I, and then I, they stopped sharing that data. But Cindy found another way to get it, and so we had pulled together a really uh, terrific data set about autism cases in California by birth year uh, at different state, you know, year by year by year by year. And what you can do is adjust away a lot of the distortions that come up in time trend data. Uh, and so we started writing a paper about that, and that one, Cindy, took right, it took years, but we ended up. Long story short on that, we ended up publishing two papers that were published in the Journal of Autism and Developmental Disorders, JAD, which is the main uh, mainstream journal of autism. And I had published some stuff in there early on uh, in my journey. Um, and then we published two papers here, one on diagnostic substitution, basically saying that the data shows that you know it's not better diagnosing that's causing the increases. The increases are real. And then also that here in California is this long-term trend, and the rates are really going up. Um, and we got both of those papers published in JAD in 2017 and 2018, much to my surprise, actually, <laughs> because I thought we would never do it. But it was a, that was its own long journey. But once we did that, it struck me that you know, if we can get in, you know, the, the core of that data in, into, into, into a mainstream journal um, and show the extent of the problem, it was a relatively quick step to do an economic model. And so the idea that we had was to take that time trend, that really sharp curve, that rising curve that goes all the way back into the 30s, you know, basically zero in the 30s and then on up and it, you know, the inflection point in the 90s and then you know, a, a sharp uh, rise here, and then say uh, we'll turn that prevalence curve into a population forecast because you have people that are born, you know, in each of those years. And, and as the, you move the population forward, those different rates of autism by birth year will translate to different cohorts of, of autistic individuals by age. And so that sounds complicated, but we basically forecasted that the autism population would rise from, you know, a million or two right now 
to close to 20 million in, a, in the course of a few decades. And what that, and then the other thing that we did is applied, and there's a big literature on autism costs per individual over the life cycle. And so we collected, we developed a, a big matrix of costs by category, by age. And that, and that just shows that, you know, with, with young children, you're dealing with education uh, issues and lost parental productivity by the time you have adults. You're dealing with residential services and the lost productivity in the workforce. Um, and you mash all that, you, you multiply the population forecast times the matrix of cost per individual over the lifespan, and you get a model for you know, rising cost to society of, mm-hmm. you know, of the autism problem in its aggregate. And so that was really the model of the paper to say, let's, let's, let's you know, run the economic cost year by year of uh, the toll that autism takes on society. Um, Excellent. Yeah. Yeah. And so then you did this, you accomplished this task, and then you submitted it for peer review, and it went through yeah. that lengthy process, and it passed? It did. It, it sailed through. I mean, the one reviewer, uh, it, the review was two words. It was simply excellent. Um, oh, and, then, nice. and then the second reviewer made very constructive but modest suggestions. And, and that's when you know, the peer review process, when it works well, the, the editor sends it out to a select, you know, collection or set of, of experts in the field. And, mm-hmm. and, and they are blinded as to the authors. And mm. so, um, so we sailed through peer review. We made modest changes. Uh, we, you know, the, the only changes we made actually strengthened the argument. That was one of the bits of feedback we got that we were too humble. Uh, <laughs> and, and, uh, and so it went in and in 2021, it was published online. Um, and then, you know, stuff hit the fan, <laughs> you know, um, which was a whole different process. Yeah, so let's, Cindy, you want to pick up the story there of what happened. It was out there. People were reading it. It had uh, an amazing number of downloads, didn't it? I mean, it was really getting a lot of good attention. And then what happened? Yeah, I think it's something like 18,000 downloads or, um, well, um, yeah, I, and again, Mark is probably more familiar and, and Toby, who's not here with what happened, but because they read the Spectrum News uh, blog, which is, I guess, the newsletter of the Simons Foundation. But they apparently put out a very critical piece on our article. It was around that time that the eugenics uh, complaint was filed against me. I think that was in August of um, 2021, um, which I didn't realize at the time, but later um, connected it to the, the Spectrum News article. Um, and certain, um, some of them named, some of them unnamed uh, academics uh, complained about the article, said it was just, what, did, what were the words, just awful or incredible that this stuff gets published or something like that. And then we started receiving messages from our journal, JAD, that had published us um, saying that... Um, Questions have been raised about the methodology uh, and, 
Yeah, Mark, you probably know. Yeah, it was. I mean, the, the Simon Foundation. The, the Simon Foundation is the leading, or has been one of the leading, private sponsors of genetic research into autism, and so that's their whole mission. And exactly. anything that calls attention to the fact that the biggest part of the autism problem is environmental causes uh, is is an attack on their mission. And so they, you know, uh, and, and there is sort of a activist science criticism, which aims to root out, cancel, and um, uh, and punish uh, science that goes off the approved narrative. And this was off the approved narrative. Um, mm -hmm. uh, and and that you know it got personal. Um, you know it was uh, it was mostly well it was personal on all three of us. I mean they focused on me in the beginning because I had undisclosed non-financial conflicts of interest, which you know basically meant I was an unapproved person. Um, and then you know Cindy had written stuff about uh, environmental science that she Cindy you were the least vulnerable, but you got attacked for eugenics uh, in your, you know, in your home um, territory. And then Toby is, you know, wrote a PhD thesis on the political economy of autism and has been very outspoken. So they, they went after all of us in, in, in a way, but it became ad hominem. It became an attack on us, not the argument. And, um, and it got wrapped up into this progressive narrative that uh, you know, autism shouldn't be declared a problem. It should be celebrated, uh, and we should embrace neurodiversity um, mm -hmm. because everybody with autism needs services, which is the last statement, of, of course, is true. But, you know, as a dad, I'm worried about my daughter when I'm gone, and if services are expensive and governments are cheap, and the more we strain the services system, the more we're going to run out of money. And so if we yep. walk around with our you know, hands over our eyes and our fingers in our ears and say there's no real problem here, you run this forward 10, 20, 30, 40 years, we're, we're, the system will break. You know, there is not enough money to deal with all these problems. You know, we were forecasting $5 trillion. That's if you just run the model forward in a mechanical way. But... You know, I run it. I'm the CFO of an autism center. We can't find therapists to deal with children today. You know, mm -hmm. and and and, um, and there are no adult services for autism. Zero. There's no residential services. The parents are their primary caregivers and custodians. And when the parents die, you know, we're going to have you know millions of of adults uh, floating around in the system in warehouses with no viable support. So it's a catastrophic problem that nobody wants to deal with. We mm -hmm. just want to start, you know, dealing with these comfortable nostrums of, you know, of diversity and tolerance and everything is wonderful and aren't we, you know, and, is it, and, and focus on non-sequiturs like, you know, the comparative rates of autism in black, Hispanic, and white populations. Now, all of those numbers should go down, and that would be progress because then, you know, people mm -hmm. with, you know, young people will be, won't be born, they won't be disabled in early in childhood, and they'll go on to live long, productive, and healthy lives. That's what the goal should be, not, you know, celebrating, you know, disability. You know, yes, we should celebrate the people that have, that are disabled that are here, but mm -hmm. we have to recognize that it's a burden on, on yeah. the whole system. Right. Yeah. We, we celebrate the child. We celebrate the individual. We don't celebrate their disability. 
that is just, it's crazy. The, the language, the marketing, right? The evil brilliance of yep. these marketers. I'm saying that yep. we have to, it's like, like I said, oh, wow. You know, let's celebrate your cancer. You know, look, there's so many of you that have cancer. Let's celebrate it. Let's not try to shut. Yeah. I mean, it, the whole thing is just absurd love, to me. Love, love the patient, love the disabled person. But yeah. you don't, that doesn't mean you have to love the condition. You don't love no. cancer. Cancer's awful. And we should cure it and make it go away. You know, and, right. and to the extent that the causes are environmental, you know, take those causes away. That's the work that Cindy did that was so brilliant when, that she published in 2014. But that's not a narrative that people want to embrace. They don't, we are ahistorical with respect to causation and time trends in health. Mm-hmm. And this is in mental health. Now everybody loves to talk about, oh, we've got to address mental health crises. Well, you know, maybe you stop causing them, right? Maybe you eliminate root causes. So, you know, uh, if, if we're seeing explosions in new conditions, we'll make that, that, that problem go away. Um, that's a, no that's a whole other... That's a whole yeah. other trillion-dollar psychotropic drug industry-created yes. issue. Yeah. That we, we, yes. We'll save that for another show. But, yeah. I mean, to pick up the – but to, to sort of resume the story of the, the paper, so there was the – and again, I'm probably the least um, familiar with all the details because it was really Toby Rogers who took the took on the brunt of the work um, – Dealing with these these Toby lawyers the war and, against the, <laughs> against the, the, <laughs> the journal, um, but yeah. I mean, it was reminiscent of what happened during um, our two and a half year saga to publish when Mark and I and Walter Zaharadny published a paper on the California data, where we I think we went through something like five journals, who knows how many peer reviewers, uh, multiple editors. So they, they do things that kind of set you up for failure where mm-hmm. they say, here are here's a set of complaints from anonymous reviewers. You have like two days to respond to this. You know, there was literally um, one uh, time when I was given something like the weekend to respond to a, a lengthy set of criticisms. And something similar to that happened here with with JAD and the autism tsunami article, we were given a very short uh, time window to respond to um, criticisms that were, some of them were just vague, like um, uh, inappropriate data were used or something like that. I, or, you know, using 1931 as the start year is not justified. Well, it was justified because that was the first birth year for which we had data and the prevalence was close to zero. I think there was one person who had autism in that year. So there was there was a reason for that. Um, But so we carefully responded to all the complaints, but it didn't really matter. We you know, we continued to get letters from the lawyers for JAD saying they were going to retract the paper and we it became a. discussion over what wording would be used in the retraction. Um, and I think in the end, we were only allowed to say we disagreed with, yeah. with the reasons given. Um, we were not allowed to post our own rebuttal to, to the criticisms that were made. Um, well, and then, were, Cindy, it's, it's important to mention, one, that was the process that JAD was on. And an interesting thing that they kept doing was they kept citing this external source, uh, COPE, C 
COPE, the Committee on Publication Ethics or something like that, and they said oh, they were following the COPE guidelines for a retraction. Um, and we were sort of surprised that we didn't know what the COPE guidelines were. Um, but there, there are guidelines that basically says most of this stuff, when you have a scientific disagreement, you should play it out in, in public in letters exactly. to the editor, and retraction should be a last resort. Exactly. Um, and, and, and so we decided to kind of call their bluff, and we found out what COPE was and discovered that there is kind of an arbitration process. Yep. And, and it was pretty obvious that JAD was violating COPE guidelines, you know, I mean, extravagantly. And so we submitted our paper to a COPE arbitration process, which took another, I don't know, what, a year? Um, and, it, um, it was dragged out for a while, yeah. Yeah. And, and, and basically, one of the things we concluded um, is that COPE is, the, the arbitration process is a way for the journals to launder their, their difficulties. Um, and, and the COPE arbitration arbitrators are basically a rubber stamp for the journals. We, I've never heard of COPE overturning a retraction notice. Um, and, and there are two things of note. One is the, the editor-in-chief of JAD was a major recipient of research funds from the Simons Foundation. So, oh, good uh, heavens. Yes, there there's a go. major conflict of interest right there. So the Simons right Foundation there. has huge power over the journal. The second thing mm -hmm. was when we got into the, the COPE process, the arbitrators uh, engaged um, a, a representative of the, of the journal, uh, and it was actually the, uh, the parent company of the journal, Springer, and and this was a guy named I, it's a Dutch name I uh, wouldn't Tim, pronounce it right um, Tim, Tim Kershies or something like that the, yeah. the, the, the editor in chief was Fred Volkmar and he was you know getting millions from the Simon Foundation Tim Kershies worked for Springer and he was the representative of Springer in our arbitration process and then one thing that we discovered is the month before we st we submitted this for arbitration. Kirstie's got appointed to the board of COPE. So we were, you know, we were dealing with judge, juries, and executioners in the whole process. Oh, spectacularly good corrupt, spectacularly biased, and we were the ones being accused of dishonesty and lack of integrity and honesty, which was completely false. So mm -hmm. uh, COPE, you know, they, they went through the motions, they did things in the way they said they do, and then they just basically rubber-stamped the journal's decision with no good explanation. Um, and, you know, and yeah. so that, that's how we ended up where we ended up. Okay. And so then, but then there's good news. And so the, the remaining time we have of the show, I want to, you guys to discuss what you found in the important information in the study, because you then submitted this paper to another, an ethical journal um, yep. by a, a, a co-friend of ours, Dr. James Wines Weiler, um, has this journal. It was thoroughly peer-reviewed and passed, and it is now published um, yep. at the Science, Public Health Policy, and the Law. And so there it is. And um, so now people can find it. Now people can read it. We can, uh, you can bring it to your legislators, um, and, and we can begin to 
show them the financial societal cost because I feel like sometimes, as I said at the beginning of the show, that's the only thing that seems to motivate them. So um, yeah, so we'll we'll take it away here. And um, I'm showing it on the screen. And if um, I'll just let you guys sort of guide me where what you would like me to show if there's graphs here, you want me to scroll down to, you know, in the in the abstract, I think there is an important point to be made in the that last second to the last sentence in the abstract okay uh where we say there is substantial potential savings through asd prevention via identifying and better regulating environmental um factors that increase autism risk yeah, that was something that was not in the original jad version and i think you know we wanted to make it absolutely clear we're not talking about eugenics, um, selective abortion, or anything like that. We are talking about reducing risk by limiting toxic exposure, environmental exactly. exposure. Yeah, exactly. And do you want to go ahead and read whatever of this, um, of the abstract that, you know, kind of gives a nice summary of what's in your article? Well, I mean, there's, there's the numbers which are... are somewhat you know they might a better be to mind, mind okay. numbing um i mean I, I i'm the one who sort of made the graphs and did the calculations so i can probably better describe the the graphs okay. for example if we go to figure one i'll go um, down to figure one and then page some of the audience is um page 12 yeah page 12 of the uh on the uh okay. or 238 uh that's on the uh yeah Thank you. We'll go down to two. That was our call. Okay, that, you just passed it. You passed I it. I just passed it. All yeah. right. And go. this one here. So, um, and let me make it a little bit smaller so that it all fits. We have a, a radio and podcast audience as well as visuals. So if we we'll just try to make sure that um, you speak as if um, to just the audio would be great. Thank you. Yeah. I mean, this, this was really the key, the key element of our calculation that was different from previous studies was um, uh, one of the most frequently cited previous studies was by Lay and Du in 2015. Um, and they, if you just take the number 1%, you know, um, code one autism, by the way, is, is severe autism as um, defined by the California Department of Developmental Services. So and we're not we talking about Asperger's, high functioning, able to go to college, get a job, have an income type individual. You're talking about somebody severe enough that they're dependent for life. Right. That they are, they are, um, you know, ascertained to have at least three out of seven functional disabilities that will, will interfere with their ability to live independently okay. live and work independently as an adult. Um, so previous studies had assumed that the, the regardless of birth year, which is on the X axis, that the prevalence was 1%. Mm -hmm. just a horizontal line. Whereas, so if you see the black symbols in there on this graph going up exponentially, starting, you know, really starting to rise from 1980, but really taking off, um, you know, in around 1990 and continuing to increase um, more or less exponentially, um, th this was the, the true prevalence and we had that through birth year 2016, um, which were four-year-olds in, in, in 2020 data that we mm -hmm. 
used in this study from the California Department of Developmental Services. We This was uh, Mark's um, call, his judgment call to model, to project these rates into the future using a logistic function. So it go it continues to to increase the, the prevalence exponentially for a while and then eventually levels yeah, off. And, and, and Cindy, it's important, you know, when you use the language exponential increases, that means mm -hmm. they explode. They explode mm -hmm. forever. And uh, uh, there's a, another way to do the math, which is, you know, exponential increases are like compound interest, right? You keep multiplying right. by per the same percent and it just, and it, just it, it explodes. Uh, there's another way to model increases, which in popular language is an S-curve. Um, and that's what we assume that, that we, um, and you could make the argument for exponential increases, but basically that means everyone will be, everyone in the whole world will be disabled by, you know, before too long. And, and, uh, we, we didn't make that aggressive an assumption. We assumed that the, the, the exposures will, unless the exposures keep going up, the exposures have to keep going up to drive the rates up even further. And so we, we modeled an S-curve, uh, and that's what you see in our prevalence forecasts. So, so basically, it's a pretty conservative I, assumption of yeah, how prevalence will continue to increase. I just want to interject here that I've heard it said many times that there's no such thing as a genetic epidemic. You can't have numbers rise like this if it's purely genetic. There has to be an environmental factor driving it. Is that accurate? And that's the, uh, yeah, and Bernadette, that's the, that's the elephant in the room, right? Um, what is it? I mean, you know, if, if something is happening to it, something new and horrible is happening to a generation of, of, of humans, and it's terrible, and it's somebody's fault, right? More than or one somebody's, but yes, yeah. You know, it's, it's caused by something, and we tried studiously to avoid finger-pointing, you know, causation references, you know, we obviously, if you're dealing with an environmental epidemic, you'd want to stop it, right? Um, and you would want to prevent it. So we did have future scenarios of prevention, right? Mm -hmm. we, but we didn't take it down to zero. We had a very, you know, we had a very conservative prevention scenario. And even mm -hmm. then the costs explode by a lot right. you have all these people that grow up in age who are permanently disabled. Um, mm -hmm. But, um, uh, so, um, I lost my train of thought there, but well, yeah. I'll just say something in defense of the, of the prevention scenario, because, you know, in yeah. my field, I, I do work with future projections of, of climate, for example, mm -hmm. and always you have a business as usual, and then you have a, a more optimistic scenario. So it, to yeah. me, it seemed incomplete to make a forecast model without having some sort of more optimistic model. Um, this, uh, I won't even talk about the low scenario. I think that's probably something that, that, that was sort of included to account for a change over from DSM-4 to DSM-5 and yeah. definitions yeah. and that, that, that California might have started accepting more mild cases more into their yeah. caseload. I, I think the two curves to look at are the base case, which is the red curve for those who can see yeah. it, and prevention. Um, so the prevention was not meant to to um, disparage anybody 
living with autism or de to devalue anybody. It was to um, try to lower children's risk from, you know, experiencing a harder time in, in, in school and in the, as an adult than they, they need to. You know, if, if, you know, our thought was that if it's possible to reduce their risk and spare them from dealing with some of these hardships, that that, that would be welcomed as desirable by everybody that turns out that's not how a lot of people view this um and again you know i don't like being the bad guy but so the the prevention scenario we needed a justification for it and i had published a paper with william parker in 2020 where we we looked county by county at the california data and found that in some wealthy white counties um such as uh santa clara Marin, Sonoma in California, that the rate of aut autism had uh, been increasing, increasing. And then around the year 2000, it leveled off and even declined down to about 0.6%. So that is the reason why this prevention scenario kind of, it's, in, it's increasing along with the base case, and then all of a sudden it drops. And the assumption there is we identify the cause of autism, we, we educate parents, we educate doctors and the population, and the rate drops off dramatically. Um, well, and Cindy, I don't think we identified cause. We just observed a population in which the time trend went the other, the other direction. Right. Yeah, like that, we except we, we made no statement cases. about what these no. wealthy white parents yeah, what they did. might have been yeah. doing. Um, had we you know, had we known from the get-go that we would be publishing in James Lyons-Weiler's journal, we may have dropped that in that prevention scenario. We may have allowed that to drop way down, way below 0.6%. I mean, one alternative that we discussed and didn't put in the paper was you take it back to zero. Take it back, right. or take it back to the rate, the one in 10,000 low rates that it used to be before the, you know, the 90s. Um, right. But that was, you know, that was, we figured that would be more inflammatory that, you know, we, we, we wanted to not, engage on the 800-pound gorilla, the elephant in the room. We didn't want to be accused of, of making an anti-vaccination argument, which is ultimately that's what they accused us of anyway. Um, and so right. we didn't, you know, take, you know, you could say there's the 1986 point, right? Go back to before the National Childhood Vaccine Injury Act, go back mm -hmm. to the environmental conditions that we all grew up with and take the, the autism rates back down there and see what, and, and model those economics. Um, yeah. We didn't do that. We, we wanted to do something that wasn't you know, as provocative. We wanted, and Cindy had this paper, with a, a reference population where the rate declined. We didn't want to observe why or speculate as to why. We avoided speculating, speculation about causes. Um, but it's obvious. Yeah, I, I would love that to be the yeah. next study. I'd like to know. And it's, you know... Yeah, I can say it freely here. I'm I'm just the interviewer. Um, I it is from all the signs I'm seeing um, the vaccines pre cradle and then day of birth and you know two months four months six months one year the whole thing. Um, I I think that there's really strong evidence that um, para um, acetaminophen Tylenol is involved. Um, in 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 many aspects of what's going on, and of course and, the glyphosate and, and the poisoning of the gut. Bernadette, yeah, I mean it's clearly an environmental epidemic, yeah. and but I think the causes might be 
you know, more complex than we want to make them. But the, yeah. the, 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 the moral imperative is to investigate and put all our resources into research on what the environmental causes are for this epidemic so that we can yes. remove them and limit the exposure of infants to them. And that may include, you know, all kinds of industrial products. It might include, um, you know, maternal exposures, but it almost certainly includes, um, you know, the childhood immunization program. And that's exactly. the elephant in the room. Yes. And I can't believe how this hour has flown. The, yeah. We could. I wish we had another hour to keep going. Um, I, I hope that, you know, I'll be able to have you two back because we're down to like the last three minutes. I'm just getting... Um, news that is just another couple of minutes here. So um, final words, I guess, from uh, from Mark and from Cindy, um, final things you want us to leave our listeners thinking about or actions to take. Um, you want to go ahead, Mark? Sure. Yeah, I'm a dad. I have a 27-year-old daughter with autism who um, will never be able to live independently. And my primary motivation in all of this is concern uh, about what happens to her when her mother and I are gone. And I am deeply concerned about that. And, that, and if society doesn't, uh, you know, face up to the, the prospect and the numbers and the crisis that we're looking at, we, we will basically become ungovernable as a society. Mm-hmm. And I'm deeply worried about that. Yes, I am too. Thank you. And Cynthia? Yeah, I guess I'll, I'll just mention that um, Mark is, is focused on what's happening with the adults um, and wh- wh- whether um, adults will have c- proper care. In my own school district, though, in, in Boulder, Colorado, I attended some meetings this spring where um, a lot of parents whose children are on, who, who have autism, are very frustrated already because there's there's a critical shortage of special ed and paraeducators to take mm-hmm. care of these these kids to the point where some of the parents are being told don't send your child to school we have nobody to to take care of them mm-hmm. um, so when I saw that and I was in we were in the thick of this retraction process where you know people have created this rosy narrative of we're we're getting better at diagnosing and everyone's getting the services they need well they're not they're you know they're They're not not even at the childhood level they're not getting the services they need because even even in the schools there are not enough um, staff to take care of these kids let alone when they become adults yeah and at this at the same time and i actually ran for school board yeah, and I'm sorry to cut you off, Cynthia. We've got to go, but thank you. So everybody, bring this to your school boards, bring this to your legislators to study. They need to know about it. Thank you both for being our guests. You've been on the Liberty Hour on Inform Life Radio. We'll be back next week with a couple more great guests. Thank you. Are you suffering from a sinking feeling that the COVID-19 pandemic is being blown out of proportion and that nothing in the news is making any sense? If so, then there is a fact-based, science-driven news show designed just for you. 
My name is Del Bigtree, and I am the host of The High Wire, the world's most trusted news source in digital media when it comes to accurate, science-based reporting on the COVID-19 pandemic. From COVID-19 vaccine development to mask mandates, school shutdowns to job layoffs, The High Wire goes beyond providing you with the most accurate, evidence-based investigations. We send you links to the sources for all of our reporting so that you can further your own investigation and come to your own informed conclusions. High above the agenda-driven circus of mainstream media, we do not run. We do not hide from the truth. Instead, we walk the high wire. If you care about truth, then join us on Instagram, Twitter, Roku, and our website, thehighwire.com. Informed Choice Washington is a nonprofit organization that advocates for healthy immunity, medical freedom, and fully informed medical consent. The right to make medical choices without coercion is fundamental to our civil liberties and a basic principle in all human rights declarations. To learn more, tune in each Friday from 3 to 5 p.m. to an Informed Life Radio and visit the website informedchoicewa.org. It's time to take a stand for medical freedom. Go to informedchoicewa.org today.